0: WELCOME TO NEWSMAKERS, I'M TIM WHITE. RHODE ISLAND PROGRESSIVES DID WELL IN THIS MONTHS PRIMARY, DEFEATING EIGHT INCUMBENT DEMOCRATS AND SECURING MULTIPLE NOMINATIONS. THIS WEEK, WE TAKE A CLOSER LOOK AT TWO BIG UPSETS. IN PROVIDENCE, TIARA MACK WON OVER LONGTIME STATE SENATOR HAROLD METZ. AND IN EAST PROVIDENCE, ENTRENCHED STATE SENATOR WILLIAM CONLEY LOST TO NEWCOMER CYNTHIA MENDES. Ted Nisi and I spoke with Mac and Mendes via Zoom on Thursday about what they thought drove them to victory, and they did not hold back on their desire to see a change of leadership within the General Assembly. Tiara Mack and Cynthia Mendes, thank you so much for joining us on the program, and congratulations to you both on your primary uh, night victories. You know, you both beat veteran prominent senators. Uh, Tiara Mack, I'll go with you first. What gave you the confidence? you could be such an entrenched candidate, and I guess basically what spurred you to run?
1: Yeah, I'll start with uh, what spurred me to run. Um, being on the front lines of the RPA last year, the fight for safe legal abortion, really showed me that I had a representative um, that I knew beforehand, but and a representative who wasn't willing to listen to the stories and the narratives that were happening on the ground in the community. Um, I remember sending a postcard, postcard and getting a letter back from um, Senator Metz at the time, and it had two Bible quotes and basically said that he would continue to trust God over man. And that was when I realized that that the stories that me and countless other people had been saying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee for hours, sometimes until 6 a.m., if you recall those long, long nights for the RPA, um, weren't really being heard by someone who could separate their own personal views from what was best for the lives of people in the community who were directly impacted by the access to safe and legal um, health care. And that was when I decided um, I, could, I could do this. I am here listening to the stories. I'm going to um, be a person who is going to set aside my own personal beliefs and do what's best for a community that is struggling Um, through so many different things. And I think that also gave me the courage to run, being a real authentic, true person um, in the middle of uh, very personal testimonies, um, being someone who's worked with the community, with young people, um, and being a person who has um, been on the front lines of many issues. um, I think that gave me the courage to run. Like, these are these are, these are people who are just like me, um, kind of like lifting the veil, like politicians aren't some um, fancy dancy group of people who are um, unlike any of us, they're just regular people who um, have went into the life of public service. Um, and I'd already been in the life of public service, so why not um, change my role from being on the front lines to being someone who can influence policy and practice?
0: Cynthia Mendes, the same question to you and, uh, you know, Um, Tiara had unseated, as she mentioned, Senator Harold Metz. In your case, it was uh, Senator William Conley, again, somebody who was entrenched. Uh, What gave you the confidence that you could do that? And what spurred you to run?
2: So, um, what spurred me to run was really my community. Uh, some friends and people in the community that I had served and volunteered with um, had just been so fed up with um, a leadership in the state house that wasn't listening to us. That wasn't ad- actively working for working families. And so, um, <laughs> they they had approached me and said, "Hey, would you you know think about running? Like, you should you should run." I, I honestly I laughed at first. I couldn't really believe that you know. That they thought that was possible. But then I had to think about who was going to fight for us, you know, who was going to stand up for us. And that's how I was Raised. I was raised to speak up on behalf of my community and the people around me. That's why when I'm not working two jobs, I am volunteering and working. So I know firsthand what working families in our community is going through, you know, um, also Previously, having worked in healthcare and knowing what it means to be a working family and still not be able to afford the care that you need, even with healthcare, you know, and so, and then to know that our leadership in the state house is taking money from insurance industries, and, and 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 that's who they're spending time with, you know, and they're taking money from corporate PACs. So it was really easy for me to to then realize, oh, if I don't fight for them, no one will. Um, and that was a really just dis- a distinct decision maker. And then also my daughter, you know, I have a teenage daughter, and I had to think about the world that she's going to walk into. And we have teenagers across the globe having to march and. Demand that the lead their leaders address climate crisis in bold, aggressive ways and stop selling out to the fossil fuel industry um, is absurd to me. So I knew that um, you know her future also required me to do that. Um, and what gave me the confidence? Um, was multiple things. One, I get to run with the Rhode Island Political Cooperative, so a slate of other candidates like Tiara and across the state of of everyday people who have been serving their community and just realized that the power of us together um, with with a service leadership heart could actually change the face of leadership in the state. Um, And the other thing is really... um, the sheer negligence of leadership—they got too comfortable, um, they got too entitled—and and so this idea that uh, they actually left the door wide open because they hadn't to talked to voters in a very long time—they do not know what is impacting them and what they care about. So, that—I mean—that is what I do. Uh, so it was quite easy, as far as that is concerned, to build that confidence because I trust my community. I know what they care about.
0: Well, Cynthia Mendez, sh- you know, should point out you're running unopposed. Tiara, Mac, you, you're facing an independent Kevin uh, Gilligan uh, in November. But just a quick follow-up uh, before we get to you, Ted, if you don't mind. Um, Cynthia, that you don't seem too happy with leadership, should we take that to mean you're not going to vote for Senate President Dominic Ruggiero uh, come come January?
2: Yeah, you, absolutely not. Um, you know, my, my hope is that what we've heard across the state, not just in my district, but really across the, the state, is that there's a hope for new leadership. There's a hope for bold and brave leadership that's going to listen to the people. And, and, and who would
0: that be, yeah. Cynthia, who would that be then? Who would get your vote?
2: You know, that would be interesting. We, I, you know, no one's challenged him yet, um, but I I believe that we have leaders, you know, in the state house right now that have been suppressed by, you know, the current leadership. Um, So I'd be interesting to see what my options are, um, but he is not one of them.
0: (laughs) Tiara, Mac, same question to you.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, I believe I've already said this before, but I would not vote for the current Senate president. Um, I think it is important to realize that this is someone who has wielded their power to make sure that important legislation has not made it to the Senate floor for a hearing. Um, and that's just not good governance and that's not good democracy. And so we need a bold, brave leader, like Cynthia said, whoever that person is, I'm sure there are going to be um, leaders in the Senate who now feel this momentum that the Rhode Island political co-op is bringing into the Senate, um, into the Senate um, floor. No one really anticipated that six of us would um, be here um, on January, that we would have a platform strong enough and enough power to really shake things up. And I think they underestimated that, underestimated that aspect of the Rhode Island political co-op. So I think nothing's off the table. And I think we will see a rise in new voices who previously did not have um, either the courage or the support system they needed to step into Senate leadership.
3: Um I want to ask you both a little about your races because I'm a political reporter and I can't help myself, uh, and I know your I know your districts to some extent. Um, so I'm act- I'll, st- I'll stick with you first, Tiara. You know, you alluded to it yourself in your first answer. Uh, Senator Metz, you know, um, he has led on on some progressive legislation like on housing, but he's very socially conservative. Um, would frequently, as you said, uh, reference the Bible in his uh, speeches on issues like abortion and, and same-sex marriage. Um, and you know, for years, I think a lot of the political reporters wondered, you know, as the Democratic Party really wasn't there with him on that kind of view, uh, you know, if that would catch up with him in his district, but he he kept winning. And so we thought, oh, okay, there's just a different view in that district. How much did you feel that played into voters decision to switch to you? Or was that was that not as big an issue in the district and it was about other things?
1: Yeah I think a lot of people um, I heard a mix of things on the on the ground and when I was knocking on doors. One, there is a large um, Latino population that hasn't been engaged politically in so long um, and being someone who took Spanish for 10 years in middle school high school um, and then took German in college, um, which wasn't as useful, but was brushing up on my Spanish and speaking on the doors with folks who had Literally never had someone come to their door, speak in their native language about issues in their community. I think one that was the most important step into um, what really changed the landscape in district six. Having someone come to your door for the first time and be able to not only ask you about what's going on in your community, but ask you those important questions in your native language, be able to understand and then be able to respond. And I think that was unprecedented in a lot of people's lives and in a lot of communities. And I think when it comes to the social conservatism, a lot of people on the ground actually did not know that Mets held those um, really um, conservative social views. I had some people tell me, they're like, oh, well, I, I know him personally. He was my math teacher. He was my principal. He was XYZ in my life. And because um, a lot of people aren't tuned into local politics, he was able to get away with his personal relationships Um Leveraging his ability to move forward in the Rhode Island local landscape. So a lot of people aren't tuned to issues. We also have some of the lowest voter turnout for local elections. So when you have a strong network um, that's been built over 30 to 50 years due to your professional life and your personal life, you're able to get 900 people to co-sign on to the fact that you were a decent upstanding person personally that they know but when people aren't tuned into the fact that this is someone who has habitually voted against um, the solemnization of marriage voted against marriage equality and also introduced the harmful voter id laws which are um some of the things that lots of folks in the community were more upset about than his social conservative views they were more upset about his stance on voter id laws in rhode island um and i think that was some of the um unexpected um unexpected sentiments that people were bringing into the races. He's had challenges before. He hasn't had, um, Senator Metz has not had challengers who are ready to put in the hard work during the global pandemic and knock on every single door and have those hard conversations and really challenge and admit this is someone that you can personally in your personal life um, like and think is an upstanding citizen. He could be your friend. He could be your old teacher. But when it comes to policy, he does not stack up to where we need to be in 2020 in Rhode Island for our people.
0: What will be your single, your your top priority, policy priority, once you're sworn into office?
2: We have to care about our jobs and environment and healthcare, and those are not separate issues. They're actually all work together. And so part of being part of the Rhode Island, Rhode Island Political Cooperative is that we have a shared platform of things that we know are a priority to our community. We actually expect, now going into this um, legislative season, and, and talking about bold, holistic, robust policies that address all the things and the burdens that are on the shoulders of our working families right now.
0: You've just heard the progressive voice there. When we come back the other side of the aisle in the other chamber, House Minority Leader Blake Filippi, what is the outlook for Republicans this November? And can they pick up seats in a presidential year, which hasn't always been friendly to the GOP in Rhode Island? Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers, I'm Tim White. As we talked about in the first half, progressive Democrats did pretty well in the primary. On the other side, House and Senate Republicans are hoping to make some gains and pick up seats come November. But will they face headwinds in a presidential election with an incumbent president who isn't so popular in Rhode Island? Despite that, the leader of the GOP in the House is optimistic. Here now is House Minority Leader Blake Filippi. House Minority Leader Blake Filippi, it is good to see you back on the program. Thanks for joining us.
4: Happy to be here.
0: So let's start with this. We, on the first half of the program, Leader, we heard from two progressive candidates who unseated two entrenched Democrats in the primary. Uh, this is a big headline from earlier this month, and we're curious what stood out to you uh, from this primary.
4: Uh, their organization. You know, they, they, they did a good job organizing, and they had a lot to run on. And I don't know that there's this overwhelming progressive wave in the state. I think we generally are a conservative state and that's why you see so many conservative Democrats. I just think you've had Democrats behaving badly. And if they didn't behave badly, then maybe there wouldn't have been these progressive wins.
0: Well, as you point out, we have some uh, fairly conservative uh, Democrats uh, and and some would say they are in leadership positions here in the state. And both of our guests in the first half uh, rejected uh, the leadership for the General Assembly and I remember Joe Trillo telling Ted and I years ago when he was a state rep that he would rather have House Speaker Nicholas Mattiello as a speaker because the alternative from his political perspective would be worse.
4: Do you agree with Trillo? I mean, I don't know what the alternatives are at this point. I don't know if the speaker's coming back. If he does come back, is there a conservative that challenges him? You know, these are caucus decisions that we're all going to make together. We, we stick together on these issues. Um, so I don't know that, I think trill was probably comparing Mattiello to a progressive. Uh, I don't know what the leadership battle, if any, is going to be.
3: I am curious, uh, Leader, because, I mean, it, it's been frosty, to say the least, I would say, this year from between the GOP caucus and Speaker Mattiello after, at times in the past, there's been maybe more of a collaborative relationship. Um, you know, c- could you still foresee an ability to get behind him if he, you know, needed those votes to stay in his speaker and, and was able to convince all of you that, you know, you're gonna get a more progressive alternative if you, if you don't back me? I mean, anything's possible.
4: I, I don't foreclose anything, you know. I don't know what the alternatives are, you know. Even the fact that we do have a frosty frosty relationship, it's it's really been on policy differences and on legal differences. You know, on the floor back in July or June when we were last there, he and I shared a laugh. So it's not a personal animus; it's a legal and political animus, and I think we both get by that. And yeah, I think. Mid- but aren't you there.
0: sort of aren't you sort of kind of glazing over uh, the the issues you're having with him? You. Literally sued him over the JPLS right now. And yet, here you are saying on newsmakers that, well, we'll have to see what the alternatives are.
4: Yeah, yeah. We're going to do what's in the best interest of the people of the state of Rhode Island, period. You know, we're suing him based on a a legal dispute. He feels that he can unilaterally control a five member committee and spend $46 million a year. And we just completely reject that. That's in the courts and they're resolving it. And, you know, this caucus will do what's in the best interest of the state of Rhode Island. if, If that is Mattiello? Then, then we consider it at that time. We don't know what the alternatives are going to be. You know, if it were another conservative Democrat, would that be appealing to us? Most certainly. Uh, but I don't think we could get behind a radical progressive uh, ever for Speaker. Maybe we would just sit it out. Um, I don't know what we do. This is a caucus decision, but we don't foreclose anything.
3: Well, speaking of your caucus, um, you know, we had these progressive victories, but those were primaries. And of course, your party's challenging uh, both some incumbent Democrats and some of the the newly nominated folks. I'm just curious, as you look out at the landscape, you have nine uh, members right now, I believe, in the House Republican caucus. Um, How optimistic are you about picking up seats considering it's a presidential year? And what do you see as your top target opportunities?
4: Yeah, I think we're aiming for getting five to six seats. You know, I think that Patricia Morgan's got a great chance. Uh, Richie and Grasso and Johnston have a great chance. Uh, Rhea and Smithfield has a great chance. Gia Russo trying to regain a seat against Caldwell and Mendonso over in the East Bay. Now, I think those are the races we have a good chance, but there's always sleepers. You know, there's people who really work hard, knock on doors, and, you know, they can be a surprise. I was a surprise when I won. No one even knew about my race.
3: I well, remember having to look you up. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to Ted's point, to Ted's question, the other part of that question though was he asked if, you know, uh, about the, this being a presidential year, does that present a headwind for Republicans because you'll have uh, Donald Trump, who is not very popular in this state, at the top of the ticket?
4: I think in some districts it may, in other districts it would help. You know, if you look at the speaker's race, and that's another one which which I think we may pick up. Uh, that's a Trump district. Uh, Western Ryan is is a Trump district. Uh, where Kevin is taking taken on Terry Courtfriend, That goes back and forth every every couple of years. So it can help, but where Trump is unpopular, the Republican message of clean government, fidelity to the taxpayer, it sells. And I think voters are smart enough to distinguish between the federal government and, and what's going on here, because in this state, the Republicans are the party of clean government, and that sells.
3: Have you decided yourself, are you gonna support Donald Trump for a reelection?
4: Yeah, I support the Republican nominee, definitely, definitely. Um, I don't like a lot of the stuff, the rhetoric, but a lot of the people I dislike and institutions I dislike hate Donald Trump. You know, the the mainstream media that frankly lied us into Iraq war, the Iraq war, hate Donald Trump. The pharmaceutical industry that's been, been screwing the people of this country for a long time, hate Donald Trump. The people offshoring jobs hate Donald Trump. Uh, so that makes me like him. I, I don't like a lot of the rhetoric. I don't like the divisiveness, but I hated NAFTA. I hated our trade relationships with China, and he was the only one who had the guts to take these people on, and that really, for me, overcomes uh, the negatives from the rhetoric and the divisiveness.
3: So uh, let's turn back to Rhode Island and talk about the situation at the General Assembly uh, leader. And you know, let's start with your. Caucus has been increasingly critical of the relative inactivity of uh, both chambers of legislature. In your case, of course, you're looking at the House. We just had the announcement last week that uh, they aren't even going to bring the House back uh, before the November election. We're now being told, uh, and they're going to do the budget after the November election, and then apparently call a special election for the bond referendums because they don't want to decide now in time to get it on the ballot. You know. I know you're opposed to that decision, but you know, what do you make of it, and what do you think should be happening right now?
4: Uh, it's subverting the interests of the people of the state of Rhode Island for politics. They don't want to have to come in and deal with our massive budget hole that was created by their years of poor decisions, because they know they're going to have to break promises, promises that they've made to their constituents in order to get elected. They're going to have to probably trim government and jobs that they handed out to friends and family, and uh, I think it's cowardice. I think it's the height of cowardice and it's a cynical attempt to avoid electoral responsibility for the House of Cards that they've constructed in this state over years and years and that Republicans have been predicting. If you remember back in June, they said, we're going to be back in August. We know we're going to have clarity from the federal government in August. And then in August, it was, we're not going to be back in September. It's going to come back in September. And now in September, they finally said, "Ah, we're putting it off till after the election. And we're not making the structural changes that we may have to make. And I don't know what the federal government's going to do, but I don't think it should be a policy of the state to have our finances reliant upon action by the federal government because the federal government is totally dysfunctional. So what structural
0: structural changes would you make, Leader? What would you cut from the budget then?
4: So I think you have to massively encourage regionalization. You have to massively encourage moving to more online government services. You have to look at liquidating state assets. And maybe we could solve our affordable housing crisis and, uh, at the same time by selling some of our some of our space that we have Uh, that'll hurt i don't want to get rid of much of our open space but we are in a billion dollar deficit uh i think a lot has to be on the table and we have to start talking about it we can't avoid these difficult conversations i don't have all the answers but i'm ready to talk and it just seems that members of this body are fearful of having that conversation that public conversation and i think it's very disappointing that the membership uh, sees this delega- uh, this degradation of responsibility, this failure of leadership, and they refuse to speak out against
1: it. Uh,
3: leader, uh, actually a uh, question on that point, and uh, you know, we, we're seeing more and more concern, I'd say in, in many of the states all across the country about governors kind of governing through executive authority in a way we really haven't seen before. Um, at the same time, in many places, it's being accepted because it's because of the emergency circumstances. I, I know at times you all have given some support to the governor when you thought she was doing the right thing, especially early on. What, you know, if you, if you were able to run things for a day in the legislature, you know, what would you trim back quickly of the governor's authority or, you know, because the argument, of course, is that you can't have the legislature make these everyday decisions on schools and everything else. What would, what would you trim back first in her executive actions?
4: So I, I think we have to look at the press release that Common Cause, the ACLU and the League of Women Voters came out about her ability to extend emergency regulations past 180 days. Uh, you think about government Government doesn't have the power to control a million people. And they don't, they can't do it. You get a thousand people walking around without masks, how are they gonna enforce that? But they have the ability to control people through commerce, the ability to control us through our schools, the ability to control us through our businesses, you know, it's a lot easier to control 10,000 businesses than a million people. And the notion that the governor is, in my opinion, unlawfully uh, having these emergency regulations extend past 180 days without public comment, without the Administrative Procedures Act uh, provisions being followed, I think that's the first thing we turn back. I think it's highly problematic that these emergency regulations are extending past 180 days. And we'd also look into what happened with our nursing homes, because that was an absolute tragedy in this state. And we have not gotten to the bottom of why we have the highest, among the highest, excuse me, it varies by day, nursing home death rate in the country. Almost 80% of our COVID deaths in this state have been in our nursing homes. What happened? What decisions were made? And how can we protect our seniors and those vulnerable? In the future, if this COVID nineteen has a resurgence, as many predict it will, we haven't dealt with that yet.
0: All right, leader, we are almost out of time, but uh, we'd be remiss, Ted and I, if we didn't ask you this question. I think we ask you uh, this every time. time you're on the show. You know what's uh, coming, time. don't you? You know what's coming. If you can <laughs> ask yourself if you'd like. Twenty twenty-two on the horizon. Uh, you know, your name kind of comes up when there's uh, talk of who might run for governor. Are you considering it? Where are you on that decision?
4: I'm flattered and I'm not considering it right now. Who knows?
0: Straight out, no, you're you're no interest in that.
4: I I mean, a lot of people make make five-year plans in politics. I don't, I don't. It's like, I don't see it right now. I love serving. If there's other opportunities, maybe, but I love this job. I love the job of House Minority Leader. Um, I respectfully suggest that we've elevated this caucus and Republicans in this state, and we want to keep doing that. Uh, Frankly, I see all the power in this state in the legislature. I think the governor, in many respects, and I think this governor has done a good job of of pulling some of the power back from the legislature. I may not agree with her decisions that she's made with that power, but all the power is in the legislature, and that's where the bread is buttered, and that's where Republicans have to make gains, and that's where the people are gonna have their wallets and liberties protected.
0: House Minority Leader Blake Blippi, thanks so much for joining us. It's good seeing you again.
4: Good seeing you all. Oh, and congratulations. 42 years. You're good. You're on Twitter.
3: Well done. Yes, 42 years of newsmakers. uh, You're
0: on the 42nd uh,
3: year anniversary episode of this program. We'll have you back for our 84th, no doubt. Deal.
0: All right. If you missed our first half guests, Democratic candidates for state Senate, Tiara Mack and Cynthia Mendes, it's online right now on WPRI.com. Don't forget to take us with you by subscribing to our podcast. And with the November elections on the horizon, I highly recommend you sign up for Ted Nisi's Saturday morning column, aptly named Nisi's Notes. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next week on Newsmakers.